This morning we will be looking at the second half of chapter 3 of Luke, specifically verses 21 to 38. It's an interesting section as we will look at a very short passage that will be very familiar to you. And then we will look at a very long section with names that are not familiar to you. If you would please give attention, though, to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 3. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when He began His ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semien, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosim, the son of Elamadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Methot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Menah, the son of Methah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Eparxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalahiel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before You this morning desiring to learn more about our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Lord, we ask this morning that You would change us by Your Word, that You would comfort us with its promises, that You would challenge us with its commands, and that You would bind us together as Your people. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We are on the cusp of entering in and seeing the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. From this point on, our Lord Jesus Christ and His work will be center before us. What has come before has described for us His, His entrance into the world and it's the prediction of the Incarnation. And the one who was to go before Him, John the Baptist. And now Luke is about to tell us all of the things that Jesus said and did that we will need to know to be more certain about our salvation. And so before he enters this, he answers a question for us. Who is this Jesus? Why should we listen to him? Why are the things that he has done important? And I think we need to come to this passage and the rest of this book with that mindset. Not just assuming that there are some interesting facts and some well-known stories in this Gospel of Luke, but what we are about to do is to embark upon an understanding of the life and ministry of the Savior. And you see, Jesus is real. And who Jesus is, is important. And so this morning, we will look at two aspects of Jesus the two natures of Christ, as it were. Because you see, it is critical for us to understand that first and foremost, Jesus is fully man. And then secondly, we need to understand that Jesus is fully God. He is man and God. And as a result of that, we see thirdly, that Jesus is fully a Savior. The God-man. Who saves? Well, as we come to this passage, we don't come in a vacuum, do we? There is a problem before us. It is a problem in our culture at large. It is the problem that the culture throughout the world has faced since the advent of our Lord. And that is, who is Jesus? Have you noticed we have come to a place and time in America when not just everyone knows who Jesus is? Not everyone can cite chapter and verse, can they? It may seem surprising to you as you sit in church and listen to a pastor preach, but there are people that you know that have no idea at all about Jesus or the Bible. So we must answer this question. For them... And for ourselves. Because you see, if we are not certain of who Jesus is, false ideas can creep in. I think perhaps the most popular in the world today is the famous good teacher definition. Jesus is sort of a kinder, gentler Plato or Aristotle. He doesn't use as many big words. His stories are better. But he has kind of a heart of gold and he gives us maxims to live by. Things that will help us in dealing with our families 
and our jobs. The other problem is that people want to define Jesus according to their own terms. We like the word and the concept of Jesus, but we want to pour our own content into that. So for some, Jesus is a radical revolutionary. Kind of Che Guevara without the beret. For others, it's the exact opposite. They somehow imagine that Jesus walked around Palestine in a three-piece suit. And he is the bearer of the status quo and respectability. Because that's what we like. Some put away all of those notions as well. They say, he's not really a good teacher. He, I don't really care who he is because he's a figment of your imagination. He doesn't exist. Or if he does exist, it's only as some kind of idea that people made up. Some kind of composite. People thought about things that would be good and gathered them together into a people and slapped the name Jesus on it. Because what they really want is a God who is distant. A God who winds up the world like a watch and lets it go and leaves them alone. But the truth of the matter is, is that as has been said by many, there are really only three choices you have with Jesus. Either Jesus is the worst kind of liar ever to exist, claiming to be God when he was not. Or he's crazy as a loon. On the same level as a man who says, I am a ham sandwich. Or the third thing is, is that he actually is who he says he is. Who Luke says he is. That is, he is Lord. You're not really left with any other options. Luke understands this. And so as a result, he lays out for us who Jesus is. He describes for us first the humanity of Jesus. That Jesus is fully and really man. Now, Why must Jesus be man? Have you ever thought about that? I know we all enjoy the Christmas story and concepts that we put in our mind of the cute baby Jesus smiling and cooing and being all snuggled up. But why is the incarnation necessary? Why does Jesus need to be man? I think the first answer we get from Luke and is important in our day that Luke is writing history, we said. Remember? The first reason that we must understand that Jesus must be fully man is because the Bible is true and the Bible says that. Don't skip over that reason. Because you see, if the Bible is not true, then everything that we are doing is a waste of time. Praying is a waste of time. Because the Bible tells you that's how you speak to God. Obeying the law is a waste of time. Because the Bible tells you that the universe has order and a law. Loving others is a waste of time. Because the Bible tells you that God is love. You see, if we detach ourselves from the 
foundation stone of the Scriptures, then anything is possible. And you know this because you see it every night on your television screens and in your newspapers, don't you? People who don't believe the Bible do all sorts of horrific things and excuse them. And they want no part of being tied down to the objective and to truth. But the second reason that we must understand that Jesus has to be man is our need is real. That's another thing we like to pretend about. We like to push off our need and think that somehow we are in control and it's only people out there who need God's help. This is especially a temptation for those of us who are in the church. We think that really... What we need to do, our default position, our system reset, is to do our best for God. That we somehow need to carry our weight. And we need to perform for God. But you see, the fact that Jesus became man tells us that the reality is, is that God does His best for us. God sends His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to show us our need. To show us His provision. You see, what we need is we need someone to be between us and God. We cannot claw our way up to God. We can never pile up enough good things to get to God. Our need is real. But we also need... The truth. You see, a temptation that we all have is to look back and to say, well, I'm not so bad. My neighbor down the street, he cheats on his taxes. Oh, and my cousin, you don't even want to know what he does. Oh, and that guy at work, I'm a pretty good guy. God really should love me. I'm not out abusing children, I'm not out stealing things, I'm not out lying, I'm a pretty good guy. As a matter of fact, God's lucky to have me. You see, the problem with that is we're comparing ourselves on a sliding scale. Yeah, you're at the good part of the curve between zero and five when passing is 80. But you see, what happens here is when Jesus comes into the world and becomes man, we then begin to see the truth of what man was meant to be. We see Adam in all of his glory. We see Adam as if he had never fallen, as if he had always obeyed God. We look and we see the glory of God's creation in man. And when we see that, we know to where we are heading. We know we are heading by God's grace to a place of obedience, to a place of glory, because our standard is Jesus. But we don't just need to know about man, we also need to know about God, don't we? How do you know who God is? How do you know what God is like? Well, the Bible tells us we can know by looking at Jesus. Do you want to know if God is loving? See Jesus' love. If you want to know if God is patient, 
See, Jesus exercised patience. If you want to know if God is compassionate and merciful, see the compassion and mercy in Jesus. This is why Jesus can say to a man who followed Him around for three years, and He said, please, please, show me the Father. Jesus said, if you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. Then Philip said to Jesus, Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see, Jesus becoming man shows us who God is. We need Jesus We need Jesus to save us. He is the only one who truly knows us. He experienced all of the sorts of things that you experienced. He experienced traffic. Maybe with donkeys instead of cars. He experienced rudeness. He experienced sorrow. He experienced hunger. He experienced pain. He experienced temptation. There is nothing that you can look up and shake your fist at God and say, you just don't get it. Jesus does. Because He was man. And is man. He's the only one who truly knows us. And so Luke then now begins to show us this. Remember Luke's purpose in chapter 1 and verse 4 that Luke wrote this gospel that we might have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. And so this genealogy here interrupts. Some of you had trouble following along as I read all of the hard names. Some of you may have rolled your eyes or wondered when it would end. And remember here where this is. Right before this, we have John the Baptist coming in with the funny clothes and the screaming and the yelling and the repent. And right after, look at your Bibles. The temptation of Jesus by Satan. Luke, why the boring part in the middle? Well, there's a purpose here. You see, Luke does this intentionally. Matthew puts his genealogy up front in chapter 1. Mark and John don't even have a genealogy. But you see here, Luke wants us to know exactly who Jesus is, that He is a real man, and that He can trace His humanity all the way back to Adam. He is gifted for His ministry. And it is typical Luke. It is a detailed list. Now, some of you will experience challenges here. You will notice, if you put your finger here and flip back to Matthew 1, that the names are not identical. And someone will come up and say, Ah, ha, ha! The Bible is wrong. Look, the names don't match. Now, we're going to have to get used to this because people like to say Luke is wrong a lot. And we've already seen a couple of times that they're the ones who are proven wrong. So why don't these names match up? If Luke is trying to be so detailed, if he's trying to show us the importance of the human descent of Jesus, why don't they match? Well, I have to say, I'm not certain of the answer. 
But there are two very good possibilities that I can't wait to ask Luke in glory. The first and oldest is that this is the genealogy of Jesus through Mary, not through Joseph. And so Matthew gives the descent of Jesus up through Joseph, his legal father. And that Luke does it through Mary, his actual mother. That's why at the beginning of this genealogy, it says, Jesus being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. This has been a historic interpretation of the church. It's not without some difficulties, but it has much to commend it. The other option is this, is that Luke is giving the physical descent of Jesus, that is, father to father to father to father, the way you might do a family tree on Ancestry.com. And that Matthew is tracing not physical descent, but royal descent from king to king to king to king. Now, after the kingdom falls, we have people who would have been king, but had no kingdom but they still were in the royal line. And you know how this happens from just even watching the royal family in England. If the royal family does not have a a son or an heir, then the next in line, a nephew or a cousin, will come into the kingly line. And that will change the descent. But either way, we are not forced into the position of running around screaming, the Bible is wrong, the Bible is wrong. The perfectly reasonable explanation. Do you notice one other thing about this long list? If you look through it, there are a few names you know, right? Methuselah, the really old guy. Noah, the flood. Judah. And then there's all these names. Who's Jonah? Who's Malaya? Who's Mattathias and why are there more than one of them? It's kind of filled with nobodies, isn't it? It's a detailed list that traces all the way back. But you see, it reminds us that Jesus, the King, is like us, isn't He? He had ordinary parentage. Not everyone was famous. But I can tell you something, that every single one of these people, from Methuselah and Noah down to Mattathias, have in common. They're all sinners. They're all in need of a Savior. It binds all of us together, all the way up to Adam. Jesus is fully human. But Jesus is also fully God. Now, why must Jesus be fully God? Why isn't it enough for Him to be a a man, a superhuman kind of a man, a man among men? Well, I go back to my first point earlier. Because the Bible says so. The Bible declares to us that Jesus Christ is God. And again, unless we are willing to throw the Bible out and all that moors our life to reality... We must accept the fact that Jesus is God. You see, there is a fundamental importance to the doctrine of inerrancy. That is, that the Bible is true. Because if the Bible is not true, then we have no hope. Then we have no guide at all in life. Do you believe that today? 
You see, for you to believe in Jesus and for you to believe who Jesus is, you must believe what God has said about Jesus. It's essential. This is not an old-fashioned fuddy-duddy doctrine. This is not something that science has proven wrong. This is the core of your life, believer in Christ. The Bible is true. And Luke does this in the Bible. He links this detailed list of realistic men to whom? To God, doesn't he? Look at verse 38. There's that dramatic end to the genealogy. Who's Adam's father? I don't know. I can tell you this. It wasn't an amoeba. It wasn't a bug. It wasn't alien space trash left on earth. Adam was created by God. In the image of God. And so therefore Adam is the son of God. And Luke does this to link back to us the importance of God in the creation, but also the importance of the relationship between Jesus, the special son of God, the second and better Adam, and God. This is, of course, what the Apostle John makes even clearer in chapter 1 of his Gospel. He describes for us Jesus by describing Him as the eternal Word who was with God, who made all things, who is the true light, who is the One who bought grace and peace. And this Word, it is the Word who became flesh. That Jesus existed before that birth. He simply took on a human nature. Great indeed, we confess, says Paul, is the mystery of godliness. For He was manifested in the flesh. Jesus must be God because only God can purchase the church of God with His own blood. Only God can meet our need. Only God knows all things. Only God is able to do all things. Only God is unchanging. And for Jesus to be our King and our Redeemer, He must be God. You need not worry about the future, young people. Jesus knows the future. You need not regret the past, older people. Jesus knows your past. And He has provided for it. Jesus knows all things. Jesus can do all things. And as the Bible says in that wonderful verse, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. You never need worry. Well, what if Jesus doesn't love me next week? What if He changes His mind? What if... He wants a different people. What if He wants a different outcome? You never need worry because Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. Only God can redeem His people. Each sin against an infinitely holy God deserves infinite wrath and punishment. Now think about 
just the number of sins you have committed sitting here in church. Now think about later today. Now think about last week, last year. Now look around and it's not just you, it's everyone else in here. Now remember, we're a little bitty church. Think about everyone in this big, great city of Houston. In this moderately big country of America. In this big, huge world of billions of people. How could a man atone for the infinite wrath of the sins of billions? Jesus must be God. And Luke shows us this in this vignette with the baptism. Do you notice how Luke deals with this baptism? We don't even see it happen, do we? He gives us the recap, the highlights. He says, after the people were baptized and after Jesus had been baptized, then he prayed. You see, Luke is focusing not on the act of the baptism, but on the relationship that Jesus has with His Father. What's happening is, Jesus is praying. He is communing with His Father. Now, I don't know what He's praying about here. It's another good question to ask in glory. Was He asking for wisdom and guidance? Was He asking for encouragement? Was He just simply wanting to speak to the one He had always been in communion with? I don't know. But, but it tells us that this is no ordinary man because the heavens open up. And Mark gives us a very vivid image of this. He uses the word that they're ripped open. Like you might take a piece of packaging and rip it open to get at what's inside. The heavens are rent and the Holy Spirit comes down. And the Father speaks, all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. And the Father gives an acknowledgement of who Jesus is as He's about to go out on His ministry. He says, you are my beloved Son. He begins with a word of love. Telling Jesus that He is the chosen one of God that He is the King of kings, that He is the reigning Messiah. There's an echo of this in Psalm 2, verse 7. That messianic, kingly psalm where the Father says, Today you are My Son. This day I have begotten you. And then God moves on to say, Not only... Do I know you? Not only do I love you, I am well pleased in you. He gives a word of approval for the mission that Jesus is going on. He says, in you, I am well pleased. This is an echo of Isaiah 42, of the suffering servant, of the suffering Messiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit Upon Him, He will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus is not just some ordinary teacher. He is the one that God has acknowledged that He has chosen, that He is well pleased in. And He is well pleased in all that Jesus has done so far. In the incarnation, in His obedience to His parents, 
in his preparation for the ministry, and he is well pleased in all of the prospective ministry that Jesus will have as he goes out among the people bringing the news, the gospel. There is no doubt left here who Jesus is. Do you doubt? Then go to Jesus' baptism. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by the Father. He is fully man. He is fully God. But most practically and immediately for us, He is also fully a Savior. You see, there is another reason why this baptism is happening. It is not just an opportunity to declare. There's, this is identification of Jesus with you and me. Do you remember what John's baptism was for? It was for repentance. Now, wait a minute. Why would sinless God-man Jesus need a baptism for repentance? If you're not sure, you're in good company. Because John said, what are you doing? I need to be baptized by you. And do you remember what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew? He says, Suffer it to fulfill all righteousness. Now what does that mean? It means that Jesus endorsed John's message. If you would believe in Jesus, you must believe in repentance from sins. Jesus is putting His stamp of approval on the fact that we must repent of our sins. So if your good teacher Jesus doesn't have time for repentance, it's not the real Jesus. The second thing is, is that Jesus is as closely identifying with His people and their sin as is possible. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is no sin so great that He cannot remove it. There is no sin so small that it does not need the power of Jesus. Do you know this in your own life? Are you racked by guilt, regret, wondering what you will do, hoping vaguely against hope that somehow God will gloss over your sins, that somehow He will overlook the challenges that you've had? You see, that's not how the Bible works. That's not how the world works. There is hope and forgiveness in Jesus. And so if a baptism seems crazy to you, the cross is even crazier, isn't it? That Jesus would die for your sins and that you could have that forgiveness simply by believing in Him. Jesus is a Savior. This is part of the genealogy. He is the fulfillment of everything from the very beginning. He is the second Adam. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises to Abraham that the nations would be blessed. He is the fulfillment of the promise to David that one would always reign on his throne. All of God's promises in Jesus are yea and amen. 
And so if you by faith trust the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe in His ministry and in His work and have applied it to yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith, then you stand in Jesus. Do you know how you stand? You stand as one who is forgiven, who has repented of your sins, who has received the greater baptism that John spoke about, the baptism with fire, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you become like Jesus. You have the power of prayer right now. You see, the child of God longs to speak to his Father. Jesus shows us the way in this prayer. And then the third thing that you must know, as certainly as if the ceiling was ripped open right now, and a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved child. In you I am well pleased. That is what God says to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven. You have a relationship with God. And you are loved beyond what you can imagine. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.